Welcome back to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart, a podcast about abuse, trauma, and finding healing in the arms of Christ. As a warning, this podcast does deal with some difficult descriptions and topics around domestic violence. So if you need to hit pause at some point or take a couple of breaths, step away, whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself, please feel free to do that. As always, I'm your host, Hannah Fordyce from House of Faith and Freedom. You can check us out online at houseoffaithandfreedom.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. And I am here today with my co-host, Nikki. We have the incredible opportunity to share our space with a pastor, shepherd, and survivor today. Please note that for the safety and privacy of our guests, all survivors will go by a first name, which in some instances may have been changed. When some people come to a pastor, they assume that the pastor understands abuse. And some very well-meaning pastors can offer what in a normal situation would be great advice. But if they don't understand abuse, if they don't understand the entanglements, if they don't understand the power dynamics and all that, their typically good advice can be incredibly damaging. Thank you so much for being with us, Jake. We are just incredibly grateful you're here with us. Thank you very much. I'm uh, I'm glad to be able to share my story and, and hopefully it's helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, we trust God with you that this space will be used as he would want it to be. Um, we know it's not always easy to talk about, but tell us a bit about why you wanted to share your story and why you decided to share it now. That's a great question. I'm most excited because I think there's a lot of parts to my story that, that that are going to relate with different people. You know, for one, uh, a male being the victim of the abuse is not, I think, talked about enough. And certainly when I went through it was almost unheard of or not talked about at all. And then second, I was, I was a youth pastor in a church and actually was still the youth pastor in that church before, during, and after our divorce. And so, um, you know, there's some good and some bad with that. And, you know, overall, if, Nobody gets anything else. I hope that you get that there's a lot of hope for the future, regardless of what you're going for. There is a lot of hope and there is freedom from abuse and and you have a right to freedom from abuse. So if you hear nothing else, I hope you hear those two things that I start today. Absolutely. So Jake, could you give us a quick overview of the trajectory of your relationship and your marriage and sort of what led you into understanding that there might be something more going on with your relationship than than a marriage issue? Yeah, well, hindsight, you always have a whole different view of things than you did in, in the moment. Um, hindsight, there were red flags from the first date that we had. There are a lot of red flags while we were engaged and even more while we were married. And I missed them all. Some of them, the people near me didn't. And so I wish that I would have listened to my family. And I wish that I would have been able to be honest with myself enough to name some things as red flags and not just to accept certain behavior as, as okay. We dated for a couple of years, were engaged for a year and then got married and, and almost right from the beginning of the marriage, the onslaught of, of the verbal abuse started and it would, it would go just a half a step further, like each week, each month it would go just a half a step further. So, you know, if you look where it was by the time that I called for change, it's so obvious that the things I was experiencing were not okay, but because it had been such slow incremental changes over time, I just accepted more and more and more 
bad behavior, accepted more put downs, accepted more of the verbal onslaught. And it, you know, it is really hard to, I've been even trying to think of some examples and, and honestly, I've forgotten a lot, but I often get questions of, well, is it this or this? And no matter which answer I picked, I had a verbal onslaught coming my way. And I had, I had learned that, you know, I, I was more trying to get out of a conversation as quick as I could. I, I would just accept it and move on because I wanted it to end as quick as I could. So I could have as much peace as fast as possible. You know, by nature, I'm a highly responsible person, I'm kind, I'm trusting. Uh, I, I'm a caring person who really likes to help others and think the best of people. Um, turns out without boundaries and without some good guardrails to that, um, like all of us, our best strengths are often also our, our biggest weaknesses. And that certainly was a formula that wasn't good being married to somebody who was abusive. So it's kind of where, you know, it was hard to even come to grips with something was wrong that wasn't me. And my assumption was that I was the problem. I needed to find a better way to make the marriage work. I needed to find a better way to not get yelled at. Anytime there was anger, it was my fault for causing it or saying just the wrong thing at just the wrong time. Um, not being able to read minds just the right way to to predict what the next thing was that that would be needed. And so I, I took a lot on myself and it never occurred to me that that wasn't okay, that that's not how you're supposed to live. And that, you know, I always had in my mind, it's like, okay, well, when this next life stage, when, when those classes get over, then it'll be okay. And, and then we can start working on it. Okay. Well, when the, when the beginning of the new job starts, that's the point where I'll get better. Okay, well, I probably just need to let, let her get into the new job for about a year and, and then it'll be better. So in my mind, I always had to find some hope, some way of when this happens, it will be better. When this happens, it'll be, you know, not so bad. And that's part of why I continued to accept more and more uh, of the crazy making, more and more of the verbal onslaught. And looking back, it's obvious, but certainly in the moment, it wasn't. It was just a, a survival skill to, to sometimes get through the day. And we had gone to a counselor for a little bit and, you know, she'd recommended a book and the book was called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. And I got it, but I didn't read it right away because I was afraid that I was living in so much fear. I was afraid of what I would find because I knew that if I actually identified some of what I was experiencing as abuse, that I would have to act on it. And that was paralyzing fear because I was concerned of, of all the dreams that maybe I would lose if I, if I needed to act on what it was. So when I first picked up the book, I honestly could only read a paragraph or two at a time. And then I had to put it down because the reality was too stark. And then when I was finally at the spot where I was ready to read more, it was just like, yep, that's me. That's me. That's what I experienced. Yep. That's me. Yep. That's me. Oh boy. I have a problem here. And so I had a whole bunch of terminology that, that I needed to learn how to first understand. And then, you know, in sharing with some people around me, I, I had to understand it enough that I could, I could explain myself and explain what I was going through. And that also was quite the challenge at the time. Jake, I am just floored by what you're saying because I can relate, but I have to imagine there are so many people that are listening to this, nodding their heads and going, is he just speaking the words directly from my mouth or what? I, I am so thankful that you are able to articulate this. Thank you again, just for being so clear. 
Um, so you felt like you didn't have language for what you were in or to describe what was happening. And that is so common. I mean, I can relate to that and so many of the stories that have been shared on this podcast and uh, so many victims out there. Um, and that is just voicelessness. So how, how did you find language? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of the words I'd never heard before or had heard in a different context, words like manipulation, uh, trivializing, uh, minimizing, it just a, a lot of the, you know, if, if you read much on verbal abuse in particular, that's that's what I experienced a lot of. There, there's just a lot of terms I, I had not understood. Yeah, part of what you're describing is the power of language and just the the way that it can help encompass these really slippery behaviors that occur when we're talking about verbal, emotional, psychological abuse, things that are really subtle. Um, these shifts of power, you know, these ways of, of shifting the differential in the relationship towards one partner over the other. And when you don't have a framework to understand that, you just fall prey to it. Like it feels almost impossible to figure out kind of like the odd verbal jujitsu that's happening to you. And almost universally, I feel like when we talk to survivors, most of them say it was somebody's story or it was a book that they read that finally helped them to put these pieces together and go, oh my gosh, yes, I see what's happening or what's described here in my own life. I see it reflected and that allowed me to really own the language and the, um, I don't know if label is the right word, but the label of it being abusive, of being more than just a marriage problem. You know, it's something that goes beyond that. And I just can't imagine how much more challenging it would be as a guy. Because I think that there can be a lot more pressure of feeling like abuse is a woman's issue or a woman's problem. And so to imagine it as being, you know, no, you can still be abused as a man, as a husband in your relationship, those power differentials don't always equate to the physical power differential between the partners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and you were just saying that you were, you know, able to, to read language. It's one thing to read it, like you said, a paragraph or even a sentence, maybe. I'm curious, what was it like just to even utter your experience to others? And then did you receive any validation? Mm. Boy, great questions. You know, I... I think I wanted something on something you said, Hannah, because it it directly helps talk about this question, Nikki. Um, it was really hard as a guy, especially again, I'm talking 18, 20 years ago. All the books are written from the perspective, even the one that I had of the the male as the abuser and the female as the victim. And it was always hard to, okay, in my mind, when as I read this book, I need to flip the he and the she every single time. And it, it tripped me up for a while. And there's one um, marriage conference that we had tried and went to, and I had flagged verbal abuse as the issue. And what what was come back was, was I, I just needed to be more patient and I needed to be more loving and I needed to be more kind. I needed to serve more and do more, which at that time, I didn't know how to be more kind. I didn't know how to serve more or do more. I didn't know. And so even in what I thought was a safe space, it was still my fault, um, just not even a comprehension that that it couldn't be that you know i could be the one that's right that just wasn't out there so that all that really added to the 
to the voicelessness. And again, I, I think I said I had a lot of fear because I certainly didn't want to name the words verbal abuse. Um, the first I was able to do that with was my family. And turns out they'd known for years. And, it, you know, they were incredibly gracious, incredibly kind throughout the whole process. And when it came to friends, it was darn near impossible to even voice some of what I was going through until near the end, partially because I, even through counseling and through some good reading, I still struggled with words. And some of it because I had just plain old not been believed or had been told that I'm the one that's wrong so many times that it just shut me down and I, I didn't want to try anymore. And it was really hard. Uh, another, as a little tangent, but there was a point where I said, you know, this needs to end. And, and I started drawing some boundaries and we can talk about that in a minute. And then we had a separation and then eventually a divorce. And there was a point that I was thinking about divorce. I even had one friend who had been walking with me the whole time. But the second he realized divorce was on the table, he literally got up out of my apartment and left. And that was it. That was the last conversation that I've had with him because he could not be part of a divorce. He could not be part of that terrible, horrible thing that I was doing. Yeah, I feel like part of what you're describing is it's so challenging even for the person inside the relationship to understand what's happening to them. And they're living it every day. So for people from the outside who don't get to see sort of these subtle patterns that are occurring over time, creating this toxic culture, it's it's hard for them to come to terms with the reality of what's going on. I often say that when we look at an abusive relationship, especially one where it's not necessarily physical, you have to think about taking this wide angle lens, about zooming way out and looking at the trajectory of that relationship over time. So you're not just looking at uh, one instance or at a week or at a month or whatever, because we tend to want to hang on to those hopes, like those occasional good moments or the good that was back at the beginning. When we think about the other person, we see the capacity of what they they could be. And that's beautiful, but also, like, what is the relationship trend? What are we seeing happen repeatedly over time? Um, and And that's something that can be hard to describe to friends, to family members, especially if they haven't had um, the ability to witness that happening. and And I think that it's hard for us to zoom out, but when we do, we see some of these more subtle, subtle forms. You do. And, and a couple of memories just popped up. One of them is that I used to wish that I would get hurt physically because mm -hmm. then it would be obvious because mm -hmm. then others would know Then there'd be evidence, proof, whatever, which is a crazy thing to think. But mm -hmm. I, I often wished for that, for, for that exact reason. It's just so hard to to see in the, in the moment to moment, you know, I felt like I was constantly off balance, always on the defensive, always on the defensive. Um, and if I'm honest, it just was exhausting mm -hmm. and it, it would consume all of my thoughts of how am I going to make it through the next hour? How am I going to make it through the next day? How can I get out of this? How can I survive a little bit longer? And again, I just think back, there was so much fear. I was afraid. I was afraid of her. I was afraid of what my friends would think. I was afraid that, you know, working in a church as a person who's uh, uh, leading people in a, in a moral, you know, a moral teacher that I was not able to, you know, because again, thinking it was my fault, I, I was not even able to, to sustain that at home. I had so much fear. And again, uh, that was capitalized on purposefully. I, I didn't know it at the time. I do now, but that was part of the pattern. 
You mentioned that you went to a marriage conference and essentially walked away from that feeling like, oh, I just needed to be more patient. And I think sometimes in the church, when we mistakenly look at abuse problems as marriage problems, our advice can be really skewed in a way that's harmful. That's certainly a big one I hear frequently is like this need for more patience and more kindness and more forgiveness. And what we actually end up doing in this situation where you have someone who's like, persistently sinning in the relationship is that it eliminates the victim's ability to have healthy boundaries. Kindness and patience slowly become enablement. It becomes this perfect breeding ground inside of the marriage, but also inside a church culture for abuse to really take place because nobody's going to stop them. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that statement. Yeah, and to that point, I'm actually pretty curious how you sort of came to the understanding of what healthy boundaries actually are and who helped you along the way. Like, what did it look like in your marriage when you started to set boundaries? Yeah, it was the help of a qualified counselor who quickly understood the situation and was kind yet blunt with me, which I absolutely needed. But also, like, even when I would come in and share a story, you know, I'd hear words like, how discounting, how discouraging it would be to hear that, how inconsiderate. And those were like, what? That was inconsiderate? I was like shocked that she was inconsiderate towards me. It was such a shocking statement. And again, it's obvious, but I had to hear words like that reflected to me over and over and over before I was like, oh, this really is bad. Oh, this can't continue. Um, And this book, Boundaries by Clouds and Townsend, was absolutely critical to my healing um, and, and boundaries are hard if you've not set them before. It takes time. And I think you've got to do it with a counselor. One thing my counselor used to really help me with was, you know, I'd, I'd eventually get to a point where I'd set a boundary and it was maybe a week too late. And then the next time it was maybe five days too late. And she's like, great job. And I'm like, what do you mean? I was five days too late. Like I'm a perfectionist. I'm trying to get this right. She goes, no, but that's progress. And the next time it might be three days. And then eventually you're going to think about it within the same day. And then you'll think about it a couple hours after the fight. And then eventually you're going to think about it in the middle of the fight. And then eventually you're going to be able to start thinking about it before the fight. And you're going to be able to be, you know, proactive instead of reactive all the time. And that helped me have a lot of patience with myself as I made mistakes in setting boundaries. And, and as I lacked the confidence in following through on the boundaries, or, you know, just, just didn't sometimes know the next steps. Um, it was having her in the background a couple times a week of just talking through the scenarios that had just happened and having the encouragement, like, no, you're doing a great job. Don't stop. Yep. You're getting better. I can see. And having some real direct feedback of you're doing a good job and, and not just, Hey, well done. It was when you did this. And then when you said this, that was awesome. Keep it up. Next time, just add this word or next time, you know, just follow through in this way. Um, I I just don't know how you can walk through untangling verbal abuse uh, outside of counseling. And I'm I'm sure there's a story or two out there that does it, but I'm just not aware of one. I don't know how you do it. And it's almost like, like you're saying, it's almost like learning a foreign language because it's been so foreign to set boundaries or to speak your preference, even as simple as that. So to have someone walk you through yeah. it literally is like Spanish one, you know, it, it's yes. needed. You need that. 
Yeah, and I want to just take this moment to reiterate the wild importance of referring individuals who might be in an abusive relationship to counselors who are trained in working with abuse specifically, because it has such a nuance to it. Like you had said, Jake, untangling emotional abuse, it's really hard. It's really complex. It's just going through these tiny knots and slowly moving your way one at a time. It's painstaking. You're undoing years of confusion with these tiny moments of truth, and that takes time. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does take time. Yep. It does. Yeah, and you gave a great example of how important it is for validation to happen. If there's anybody out there that wants to care for someone who they think just might be in an abusive marriage or relationship, number one is to please validate them. Certainly believe them. Validate them. They are not crazy. Especially when your whole relationship is set up to make you feel crazy. You know, I feel like we, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, but almost universally, every victim I've worked with or that we've interviewed on the show has specifically said I felt like I was crazy. Like, this is just the most universal, like, calling card of abuse is that people feel insane by the end of it. So speaking on the idea of validation and sometimes uh, missing validation, I'm thinking back to when you were talking about your friend who had been walking through this process with you, and then you decided to separate, and divorce came onto the table, and he was just done. Like, there was no validation there happening about that particular boundary that you were putting in place in your relationship to protect yourself. And at the time, you said you were working as a youth pastor. Like, you coming forward and acknowledging or labeling your relationship as abusive and then taking steps towards separation and divorce, that risked your career with the church. How did you come to a point where you were willing to take that risk? What pushed you to the the degree of saying, okay, divorce, even if it comes at this extreme of a cost, even if it comes at the cost of my church community, the cost of my career, even if I get kicked back from it in my personal relationships, this is still less painful than staying in this relationship that is unsafe and is not changing. Yeah. Well, several thoughts on that. First one is I had to trust that what God had told me was true. I had to trust that there still was a future for me. And I had to trust in his leading as hard as it was. Um, it, it really was an, an, an act of faith. Um, I mean, to even name it as abuse, I usually see several steps down the road. And so I just knew just naming that, you know, what the next dominoes were to fall. I did feel like I risked my career for sure. I felt like I risked most of my friendships. I felt like I risked um, I, I assumed that if I ever did get a divorce, that I would never be married again. I'd lose my dream of being a father, just like the deepest core dreams of who I was. And, and you know, as a guy, your work and your career is a large part of your identity, especially working in a church when you're trying to help others to know God. Um, it's a huge part of of who you are. And so it was incredibly scary to think that I might lose literally everything. Um, and I didn't even know where I would start, but I felt God had said, you have to, you're worth it. You're worth protecting. You're worth standing up for. Trust me with, with where this is going to go. And 
So then as I finally got some perspective and looked at some of the trends in the relationship or, or saw the bigger picture, some of the things that helped me were, okay, what if I do lose my career? If I continue in this relationship, I will anyways, because I'm no longer, you know, going to be living the same things that I'm teaching. The cost will be incredible. And my job was one of the many sources of frustration. So you're going to lose it anyways. Another, you know, thing that I assumed that I would lose is the ability to be a father. And it took me a while to have, but would you want to raise kids in this environment? Would you want to raise kids in this home? Would you bring more health and healing to the world or more pain and agony? And as hard as that one was for me to confront, once I asked the question, I, I, I knew the answer before it was even, you know, out of my mouth. So I really felt like I risked everything and I felt God asked me to do it. Obviously, I'm, I'm certainly glad that I did, but those were, those were some of the obstacles that I had to overcome to even start laying my first boundary down because again, I knew, I knew it was at stake. I mean, and this just begs the question, did you disclose the abuse happening in your marriage to the church you were on staff with and how in the world did they respond? Yeah, great question. I did you know, near the point that I was ready to ask for a separation. I, I hadn't much before that. Um, the church I was a part of, it, it was, you know, some churches, like everybody on staff is real close with everybody's families, everything about everybody's business. That was not the church that I was working in. In the youth ministry, I'd, I was kind of in a silo, kind of in my own little part of the church. And I, that's not okay, but that was the environment of the time. And so in naming it for my pastor, he did not come back with, here's the five steps you've got to do. You're going to be, you know, put on suspension, anything like that. That, that wasn't the environment of the church. And I know some people that, that have experienced things like that. What we had agreed to was he said, well, I won't be your counselor, which was good because I didn't want that. He, you know, wanted to make sure that I was receiving counseling and they would kind of decide how to, how to move forward and, and figure it out. He wasn't surprised though. Um, and most people that learned weren't surprised, which surprised me that they weren't surprised and should have been a bigger clue to me at the time than it was. Um, and then I just couldn't, couldn't do it anymore and, and had to leave the home and had to be separated. Um, a letter went out to the whole church. There were several meetings about me, some of which I was at part of the meeting, some of which I wasn't at any of them, which to be honest, parts that I was there for were incredibly humiliating. Um, having to look at, at a lot of people who I cared for and respected and whose sons and daughters I'm trying to raise to know Christ, te teach them how to know Christ. And then when I was out, all I felt was more guilt than shame because I knew some of the things that they were saying about me behind my back. And so it was just pain. Um, a lot of different ways that I would ask for it to be handled, maybe going, you know, if I had had it all back again, but um, it, was a, it was a pretty dark time for me. Yeah, I'm a little speechless there. Thank you for just sharing that. I, yeah, the pain. That yeah. sounds very, very painful. It was. Yeah. And yet they allowed me to stay on staff. And yet they allowed me to, to continue to work through it. And, you know, I wouldn't say they were walking alongside me. I wouldn't say that at all. But I would say that they could tell the healing that I was doing. And of course, stuff would come out sideways, sometimes at church. And so we're, you know, had to work through some of that stuff. Um, but they, they, they did allow me to work through it. 
And so I, I give them a lot of credit, a lot of credit for setting the environment up on the backside to, mm-hmm. to help me go through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Okay. So in that environment, what would you have wanted to say to the leadership in your church or wanted them to know? Yeah. You know, part, part of the tricky part is the only way that that marriage could still work. And, and I separated with the hope that some change would happen and that it could move towards reconciliation, that that was the point of separation. And so I had to be very careful to never criticize her in front of anybody. And I wouldn't anyways, um, but I had to be very careful that if things ever worked, if things were, were able to ever work out, that there wouldn't be a heap of criticism towards her. That was very important to me. So I don't know that in the parent meeting or in a letter to the church that I would have been comfortable naming what the issues were. I'm thankful that they weren't named because um, that was the only way we had hope. I, I wish a letter to the whole church didn't need to go out. You know, a conversation, I understand because, you know, I'm you got to have everything out there and, and some transparency. That was not a problem to me, but also to, to not be part of some of it and without anybody explaining to me what happened in the part that I was, I was not there for. Um, I don't think there is any world in, in, in which that was okay. And some of my wife's family members were in those meetings. So I, I felt like my wife got inside knowledge that I didn't and had even more ammunition to use against me. And I really would love to untangle that at a minimum. Um, and I, I wish more support was offered. I wish the church culture was one of that church where we were more like a family and, and, and closer knit as colleagues and coworkers where we could offer help um, and walk alongside each other in, in difficult stuff. But again, it just wasn't. Yeah, it's something that you mentioned that I want to point out for churches, and it's an area we can really easily miss is consent and autonomy for victims of abuse because so much of your relationship is having that stripped away from you. Like you just lose your ability to voice your preferences and you lose your ability to voice really anything or make choices for yourself. And so when a church is moving forward with a victim or a survivor or working with a couple who's maybe still trying to reconcile it's so important that every single step along the way, they're really asking for that victim's input. They're ensuring that that person is informed about what's going on, is informed about the conversations that are happening, and that they're also paying attention to, like you mentioned, Jake, those third-party contact situations that can occur because that's where you start getting triangulation. And it's where you start opening the door for the person with power to continue to have more power. And that leaving process, that separation process, is historically one of the most dangerous or tumultuous times during an abusive relationship because there's a threat to the power and control that the abusive partner has been holding. And all of a sudden, that's getting exposed. All of a sudden, they're having that taken out of their hands. And so we as churches really need to be aware of the things that could potentially be putting a victim into more danger or sort of into the line of fire. And I think because most of us exist outside of the context of abuse, it's just not something that's really even thought of. Like we tend to treat like every other um, relational problem or disciplinary church issue, but it's something totally different. And that's important to recognize. 
And, you know, when it's public, um, in a church, there's healthy people and not healthy people. And the unhealthy people came out of the woodwork trying to, quote, help, unquote, which really meant either try to get the gossip, try to get the real story, try to convince me how terrible of a person I was. I, I had some people do that. And secretly were having conversations with her family on the side. You know, um, it, it did open the door to even more abuse from others. And you would wish that that's not the way it was in a church, but that what that was my experience, unfortunately. Yeah, and I don't think that you're the only person that's had that experience. And we've talked about the culture of the church that you were at at the time and the way that they responded, which was, you know, sort of like a mixed bag, which I think that is true for a lot of people where there are some things that are good that come out of it and some things that could have been handled better. But if you were to talk to the big C church, if the overarching church moving forward, what are some of the things that you wish the church had knowledge on or um, changes in church culture that you wish you could see in the future? Yeah, great question. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, one of them is, I think being a pastor is an incredibly difficult career in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of expectations that the pastor knows everything. And so when some people come to a pastor, they assume that the pastor knows how to counsel correctly. They assume that the pastor understands abuse. And some very well-meaning pastors can offer what in a normal situation would be great advice. But if they don't understand abuse, if they don't understand the entanglements, if they don't understand the power dynamics and all that, um, their typically good advice can be incredibly damaging and can come across just heaping shame and guilt, um, can come across actually giving the abuser more power, not taking it away. So I would encourage pastors, staff, or, or you know anybody at a church, if you have not been trained in abuse, please bring somebody into the conversation immediately who is trained in abuse or refer to somebody who is trained. I used to have a, a, a large list of people who I'd refer to for different situations. Um, and I would hope that most staff and most pastors do have a list of trusted people that they could refer to depending on what comes through the door. But that list is, is incredibly important. And I would encourage them to be, if they do want to enter into help either because they're trained or they're working with a trained professional, um, that it can't can't be a flash in the pan, can't be a, we'll meet with you three times and everything will get better. You've got to be committed to the long haul because helping someone escape an abusive situation is not a one-time event. It's a long-haul event. It takes time. Even if they immediately escape the abuse, there is the aftermath and there is so much that needs to happen in that person's story so much temptation to go right back to it that the care cannot stop. Um, it, it, it is a, it's a long haul effort, not a short term one. And, you know, as a church too, I would say this, the very qualities that abusive people uh, look to prey upon are the qualities in church that we try to be. We try to be kind. We try to be gracious. We try to be helpful. We try to offer mercy. That the, the very qualities of who we want to be are the very qualities that can make us vulnerable. So as a church, it's unbelievably important that you have boundaries. You have boundaries around the people that can be leaders in your church. You have a, a standard process for that. You're willing to say no. It can't be just, hey, on a Sunday morning, who wants to be a youth leader? Come on down. We need your help. Uh, 
danger, danger, danger. Like you, you've, you've got to have a process and there has to be some training and there has to be really, really clear boundaries that the church has. And then you need to talk about boundaries from the pulpit. It needs to be something that's talked about on a regular basis. You need to hear that word boundary. You need some actual examples on a regular basis. It's just so important. Those would be my first couple. I was like silently applauding because yes, 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 all those things, 100% yes. I just echo all of them so much. And we need to stop thinking of boundaries as a bad as Christians. We have to stop thinking that having boundaries inside of your interpersonal relationships is wrong or that having those as a natural consequence for broken trust or abusive behavior, that that's somehow diminishing our mercy or grace for people. Because it's not. That's a part of having mercy and grace for people, is not allowing them to continue in a sinful pattern of behavior. It's holding that accountability. You know, it's allowing those teaching moments to exist for people inside of our congregations so that we can see their lives move into fruitful change. Yeah. And you said you began this whole thing with, I just want people to know that there's hope. And um, when I'm interacting with you, I just see it is clear that God has preserved you in so many ways. And of course, there's been, you know, immeasurable growth in him and refining in him throughout all of this, but so much preservation to your heart and personhood. This is a loaded question. How did you how did you see God in all of this? Preserving you along the way, giving you that hope. Yeah, well, I mean, he 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 was my hope. And I mean this in a good way. He was the only hope left. Um, but he was also the only one that would sustain. He was all the only one that really would come through. He was the only one that could be my rock and my anchor. It couldn't be another person. It had to be in him and at every step he was trustworthy. And where I felt like I was risking everything, he's whispering in my ear, I'm not done with you. I have more to do. The story's not over yet. This is just a chapter. There's more to come of your story. And, you know, I ended up, I, I did not expect this. God shocked me. Um, I actually ended up getting remarried. And that that's not the point. But all the dreams that I thought were no longer there, God was not done with those dreams because I forgot he's the one that placed them in my heart. Those were God dreams. And he, he had more in store for me than, than I could possibly have known. And in getting remarried, some really interesting things happen. Um, there are some very specific events and very specific ways that I was wounded that I didn't 100% know how they were going to heal. And in my marriage and uh, my new in-laws and, you know, different things like that, um, they meet very specific needs. They redeem very specific parts of my story. And it just a reminder, and I shouldn't have been shocked, but of course, I mean, just like, God, you're so intentional. You, you, you saw every detail. And he's like, yeah, I saw every detail. I was with you in every single detail. You think I'm done yet? Wait till you see the next thing that I'm going to redeem. Wait till you see how much fun this next thing is. You think I didn't see this? Watch this. Oh my gosh, God, you remember that? Of course I remember that. I was with you. And all of the deepest hurts that I, I experienced, he has very specifically redeemed and very specifically healed in ways that you couldn't even dream of. Like you couldn't even write a fairy book, you know, a fairy tale and boom, that's what happens. So I'm just, 
I'm so grateful. And, you know, I, I don't know how I would have had the ability to forgive myself without his continual reminders that his forgiveness is for everyone, especially me. And when I felt ashamed, when I felt afraid, um, that he was saying, you're a masterpiece, Jake, don't forget you are a masterpiece. I, I, I made you that way. And the freedom that I had from fear, just transformational in my life. So I'm so grateful to God. He's just, he's incredible. And so if you are going through something, don't give up. There is hope. Your story's not done yet. If there are things deep inside you that God has planted, he's the author of the story. Trust him for the outcome. He's trustworthy. Yeah. You know, there's, there's hard moments to go through and, and the healing was not easy, but every second was worth it. Every second was worth it. Oh, that is loaded with God's goodness and God's love all over your story. God, as your author, the one that you run to, the one that you clung to the entire way through, none of us are perfect. How do you, how do you do a life of responding to abuse perfectly? It's not, it's not there. And, and God does forgive in those moments of fear and question and et cetera, et cetera. And here you are, preserved, full of hope and um, loving the people around you so well. I echo that as well. And I think sometimes we, especially on podcasts like this, where we highlight survivor stories, we're often talking to individuals who aren't that far out in their story of abuse. They're still very much in that untangling process of working through what was abuse and, you know, how do I heal from this? What kind of wounds were sustained from it? How do I go about putting balm on these wounds and finding a community that can walk me through the extremely long process of healing, many ways a lifelong process? So I want to sort of finish out with this question here, Jake. Could you give us a few of the resources that you found to be really helpful in that healing journey of walking towards hope, walking towards healing? Yeah. Um, a counselor is the number one thing by far. I think I've said it already, but the, the book that was helpful to me was The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. I'm sure there's more updated and more current books along the same realm, but that was helpful to me. Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend was absolutely critical um, to helping me uh, heal. Um, I think another, I, I don't know what you call it, maybe a visualization, but when that, that I think about still to this day, just in my normal interactions with people, but I had often pictured the abuse that I went through is, is every little attempt to say something to, to get under my skin. It was like, like they were throwing fishing lines at me and hook would get stuck into me. Even a small little thing, even a, an offhanded comment that, you know, you'd sit and mull on for a day or for a week would, would really just take root. I often visualize trying to, to cut the strings, to not let the hook get in in the first place. And if there were any there to, to try and cut the fishing line so that those hooks no longer had any power. And it, I mean, that takes forms of actually having no contact. So you block on the phone, you know, do whatever you can to, you know, once you've left to sever those ties. And I know it's not always that easy. And, and especially if you, if you have kids in the mix, that is a whole different layer of, of really challenging stuff to work through. But as much as possible, sever the ties. Don't have conversations that aren't focused on, you know, the kids. I would highly recommend that because 
again, it's all that su- subtle entanglement. Any little thing that can get into your mind, any little thing that can get your attention is kind of like a hook. And my job is to, to shed the hooks so that they're not there. Um, that, that's been really a helpful thing for me. And again, just even in the day-to-day, people try and rope me into stuff for things or, you know, you just go to bed at night and, and I can't let a comment that somebody said go, nope, I got I to gotta let it go. I got I to gotta cut the hook. I got to cut the string that, that can't take root. God's word has to take root. That's, that's what I want in me. So those would be some things. I love that visualization. And I think if you're listening to this and you're uh, still entangling the idea of boundaries and what is a healthy boundary versus, you know, like, I think there can be shame from the church sometimes with the idea of severing contact or getting rid of the possibility of reconciliation at a certain point. Um, one of the ways that I like to think about it, and this is actually an illustration I've borrowed from Father Mike Schmitz, who is a, a Catholic priest up in Duluth, Minnesota. And he talks about this idea of forgiveness versus reconciliation and how these two things, though related, they don't necessarily always go um, immediately hand in hand. Like we like to put them instantaneously next to one another, but they're not. And so an illustration that he gives is the idea of lending your car keys to someone and they go out and they wreck your car. And when they come back, they say, oh, you know, I was I was blindsided. I didn't see a car coming. I'm really sorry. And you forgive them. And then a month later, they ask for your car again and you lend it to them and lo and behold, they go out and wreck it again. And if we're thinking about this in the context of abuse, it's like someone going out and wrecking your car hundreds and hundreds of times. And so at a certain point, even if you forgive them every time, you're no longer required to give them the keys to your car, right? Like they aren't entitled to have access to your life because of that broken trust that has happened over and over again. And, you know, depending on the severity, depending on the length of time, depending on the type of abuse that was happening or the type of trust that was broken, you know, even if they go through all of those steps, you may still not want to give them the keys to your life. And that can be an okay boundary. That can be a healthy boundary. It's sort of this consequence of continued broken trust that they've created, that they they continue to create. And so sometimes people need, you know, limited, sometimes significantly limited or entirely um, to be eliminated as far as access to your life, depending on the amount of trust that's been broken, the amount of damage that's been done. And you can still forgive them for that, but it doesn't mean you have to give them the keys. It's a great illustration. Mm-hmm. And, and I would also say about reconciliation, there are times where that, that's important. There are times that's possible, but you got to have a qualified person to, to help you know when those times are. And it's not a wrong, you know, you don't get to control the other person in a reconciliation. You don't get to control their attitudes. You don't get control their healing. You don't get to control their words. And so it, it's tricky, but it is okay if reconciliation doesn't happen. But the forgiveness, I would say, of course, you can't not forgive. And it doesn't happen overnight. doesn't happen, you know, in just one or two counseling sessions. It's a, it's a continual process between you and God. And it takes some time. And, and it's okay that it takes time. But it is a critical step and a, and a critical spot to arrive at for your own sanity, for your own healing, for your own, you know, relationship with God. Man, I almost feel like forgiveness is like pulling the hooks out, right? Like, I've severed the strings, and forgiveness is 
I can't leave these barbs in my flesh where they're getting aggravated and they're constantly reminding me all the time. Like those wounds are still going to be there. You're not going to forget that you got hooked with something, but you can't just exist with that open wound sitting there, like getting infected all the time. And like you said, Jake, that's a process. And I think we have to be, this is also part of the the patience of the church, right? Is like, we need to be patient with people's ongoing process of forgiveness. And we also need to make these distinctions between this internal recalibration of the heart, forgiveness, and this external reconciliation process, which I think, especially in instances of abuse, is just complex because you're talking about a really persistent sin issue. And so, of course, that's, it's, it's, a, it's possible. And I think in a lot of instances, there's been too much damage on the side of heaven for that to be a feasible or safe thing to do. And as soon as we can make peace with that, we can stop guilting people so intensely. Yep. Any last thoughts before we sign off here, Jake? No, I, th- I think we've covered everything. But again, just if anybody out there is, is experiencing abuse of any sort, there's hope and there's freedom and it's worth it. It's worth pursuing. You are a masterpiece of God and you are worth being healed. You're worth living in safety. You're, you're worth um, so much to the world. And, you know, that there's so much hope. So please, please pursue healing uh, and don't give up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story and experience with us, Jake. Um, I will link the Verbally Abusive Relationship as well as the book on boundaries in the show notes so that you can have access to those if there's something that you're interested in picking up and reading. You've been listening to Seeking Sanctuary House to Heart. This podcast is a production of House of Faith and Freedom with your hosts, Hannah and Nikki. For more information about intimate partner violence training for the church, check out our website at houseoffaithandfreedom.org.